feel like you were born in the wrong era? Do you pine for a time gone by? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Kaya Handley. Welcome to This Retro Life. It's been a very amazing experience going over to Viva Las Vegas and then being crowned dust and rough to my oxygen. Quite a few people say the first time they ever saw television, in fact, was actually at the milk bar. I feel like vintage clothes is really the way to experience the past. We come out a go-go girl gang because we dance, we wear these cute little outfits. So we took off in our newly polished old trailer and along the way we're in two accidents with it. Megan Hilty falls back on the table and sticks her feet up in the air in full 18th century dress. And there's our shoes. Hey! Houston, we have a problem. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Failure is not an option. These are the quotes driving today's episode. Strap yourself in because we are about to go back to a time where astronauts built their own very basic contraptions to train for spaceflight. A time where you hung out in NASA's sheds, not in a spacesuit, but in a two, perhaps even three-piece suit, and when one minuscule mistake equaled death. Today, it's all about vintage space flight, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome host of Vintage Space, Amy Shearer Title. Hello, welcome to This Retro Life. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we will totally get to space, to vintage, but I read that initially your blog started as a place for all of your vintage loves. What are your vintage passions? Yes, so many. Um, I've always been fascinated by mid-century and especially the oddest of mid-century Americana, which I realized I don't really know how that disseminated around the world at the time. And the aesthetic of it I find really fascinating. I grew up on Buddy Holly, so I've always been a huge fan of sort of 50s rockabilly music and uh, movies of the era. I do love love movies when um, the dialogue had to be really good because you couldn't distract an audience with explosions. <laughs> so there's always just kind of been a simplicity that is very much, you know, a construct because I didn't have to live in the era of sort of this perfect Norman Rockwell-esque life. And it's always just been really interesting, really appealing in the, the fashion and the style and everything about it. It's just always been really fascinating to me. And um, when you throw in the insane advances of technology that also came about in the post-war years, again, I'm speaking from a very uh, American-centric viewpoint, um, it just kind of adds this other layer that on the one hand, you have this like hyper, hyper-masculine, hyper-feminine in the human side of things, but this incredible development towards equal rights and technology in the home on the other front and it just it always just seemed like this really interesting duality in that era yeah so initially you started blogging to explore that to explore that passion yeah yeah and it was I didn't I honestly like I had no idea what to do with that (laughs) to be totally (laughs) honest I didn't it wasn't like I had this great idea of like I'm gonna alternate between like an Americana thing to a tech thing to, you know, I, I had no plans. Um, but I just knew I kind of wanted to be able to engage in all kinds of things. I never really thought it out more than that. So I can't give you a better answer. No, than you that. just wanted it. But that's, you just wanted a yeah. space for things that you were passionate yeah. about to talk about them all and then see how that developed as you yep. grew and changed and as that passion grew and changed. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a collector? I, I'm more of a space collector than a vintage collector, but yep. those two things do intersect quite a bit. I have a very 
small collection of, of authentic vintage things. I have a few dresses that were actually my grandmother's or my great aunt's. Um, and one of my, my latest additions that is still, I'm still actually fixing it up is a, an old train case, probably from about the fifties that was from the Jacqueline Cochran cosmetics company. And Jacqueline Cochran was one of the most decorated pilots of the 20th century. So she also espouses this really interesting, like, award-winning international record-holding pilot and also beauty magnate in America in the 50s. Um, so I had to get a piece of her collection, one of the few relics I was able to find. I love that because, you know, aviation vintage is so huge, whether it's with planes, whether it's with pilots, whether it's with air hostesses, uh, cases yeah. and, and uniforms. Like, that is huge. Is there the same level around vintage space items? Yes, it's but it sort of takes on a different form. I mean, when you start getting into like the the vintage space items, you end up with things like old dusty mission reports that somebody handled and had printed in 1962. <laughs> and I mean, I, I do have a number of sort of old publications that are, you know, right out of the 60s, and they're super gross and have that old book smell. But, um, you know, I, I love the authenticity of that. I have a lot of you know newspaper clippings and stuff and magazines that people have either sent me or I've collected, because I needed it for some research thing and just figured, you know, I'd rather have the physical piece from 1960 than a PDF of it. Mm. Um, so it, you get into a different realm of things. And then, of course, you, I mean, you could expand that to say the vintage astronauts because, you know, they're pretty vintage now, I guess. Um, but I do have a pretty stellar, bad pun, uh, collection of astronaut autographs um, of men who flew to the moon, which is, you know, a different kind of mid century collecting. But it's totally still something that is valuable that comes from that era. And that yeah. was at a really exciting time for technology and for advancements. And the space race was, you know, the next big thing post-war. Yeah, and I mean, it, it captivated everybody. Again, sorry, American-centric, um, which I know sounds weird coming from a Canadian, but, <laughs> you know, it, it was this, like, thing that dominated an entire country for almost a decade. I mean, it's it's wild how many spinoffs. And then you have things like, even in the dishware, you have, like, the atomic, prints which really came out of that nascent space age and that sort of technological thing so you do have those um those echoes of the mid-century technology in cookware <laughs> um and it's it's fun for me I actually have vintage dishes that have the same kind of vintage spacey feel being just inspired by but it really works with the whole aesthetic of my life so i kind of like them how quickly did you realize that vintage space and, and space flight was the passion that you should really be focusing on that was your thing your niche and you needed to drill into that oh this has been like a lifelong obsession with me um <laughs> i i first read about the moon landing when i was seven and being from canada you know NASA doesn't really have a presence. So I wasn't, I didn't know that it was a thing. And then all of a sudden I read about it and I was like, why did nobody tell me that this happened? I want to know. So I got, I got super into reading everything I could find about it. Um, and it's always been just a, a massive fascination of mine. And then couple that with my, my mom was a huge Buddy Holly fan. So I grew up with Buddy Holly and Richie Valens and early Beatles and, and late Beatles, but you know, all of that kind of, kind of musically and all the movies and stuff. So it's always been something that's been very present in my life. I mean, I, I remember being really shocked. I think I was six when I learned that singing in the rain was not a modern movie and that Gene Kelly was very much dead. Um, <laughs> so all of these things, it was sort of like, you know, 
you know, Gene Kelly was my first celebrity crush because <laughs> um, that's what I was exposed to. And I always carried that love of sort of the mid-century aesthetic and, and whole thing with me. So it's really like my professional life now as a space lit historian that kind of uses the vintage aesthetic as part of my brand, honestly, is just like me fulfilling my nerdy childhood self. (laughs) (laughs) How did you move from a a seven-year-old who was fascinated with the moon landing with NASA? Because I think that's where everyone starts. They're the stories, they're the movies, you know, Apollo 13, that that captivates the mind of so many people. But how did you end up going further back than that to a time where really we don't talk about so much with spaceflight? I had a weird story into getting into my current life position, which I will spare you the details of. But uh, <laughs> the the short version is I ended up at a university for undergraduate that had an undergrad major of history of science and technology. And it was the first time I realized that I could engage with the history I love that is made of science that doesn't really fit into like I wanted to do more science than straight history, but I also couldn't do straight science because I don't have that kind of brain. And also going back to me being a nerdy kid, I've always been really interested in nascent technology and sort of like the first time something's happened, the first time someone discovered something, the first, you know, first time someone crossed the Atlantic. I mean, all of that, the the challenges and overcoming the problem solving of the first has always been really interesting to me, not just in space and all kinds of tech, all kinds of history. When you start reading about the space age and you start reading about the moon landings, it's really easy to read those stories in isolation because so often they're told in this neat little package of, awesome, brave American men who went to the moon. And when you dig just a little bit beneath that surface, you realize that there is a massive story of 400,000 Americans working towards this goal. And that it wasn't just like a president decided to do it one day. It had roots going back decades to have that technology available so that he could tell NASA, what can we do next? And NASA can say, we can actually go to the moon. So when you start peeling back and going into the story behind the main story, it becomes way more interesting than what has always been the main story of the moon landing. So I've kind of act out a niche within a niche, if you will, of like the earliest history and the really untold stories, because that's what gives the main stories context. Mm. And that's so much fun for me. As an historian, too, I love content. It shapes the journey to know where we were 50, 100 years before we did get man on the moon. That is the, all of that needed to happen to get, to reach that point. Yeah. And I think it really does give you a better appreciation of an event. And again, this goes for anything. This goes for any big technology or big discovery. Um, You really get a sense of how many people had to stumble along towards some discovery or some technology to get us to the point where this thing is possible. And it's really like you appreciate just how much goes into major programs like this when you peel it back. So when we talk vintage spaceflight, do you have a cutoff era where it's it's pre that time that you're focusing on that you're looking at? I put the cutoff usually at 1975. That was the year that uh, NASA and the Soviet Union, so the U.S. and Soviet Union, launched the Apollo-Soyuz mission. So it was the first co- like really cooperative mission in space, and it was sort of the uh, the end of the Cold War in space, if you will. Yeah, even though you know we got into Star Wars in the 80s and things were dicey under Reagan for a while. Um, but that's also kind of that was also the last Apollo flight. Then we get into the shuttle program, which holds less interest for me personally. So as a blanket statement, I will just say anything before 1975. But 
Yeah, there's still, you know, the same way that I love emerging technologies in that first wave of discovery, like there's still echoes of Apollo era technology in, you know, in use today. So it's not a hard and fast boundary. I I say anything that has roots in the 50s or 60s is kind of fair game. What was it like then? What was spaceflight like, the study of space like in the 50s and 60s? A lot of guessing and trial and error. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is which makes it so much fun to study and kind of read about how they did it. You know, there's a lot of really, really bright men and women that were working with the, the physics and the math of sort of figuring out how to do it. But, you know, theory can only take you so far. At some point, you have to just do it and see what actually happens. And when you're dealing with something like a rocket launching a man into orbit, you have a lot of moving parts and one thing breaks and the entire thing explodes, like literally. Um so it's you have this really interesting like let's try anything and see what sticks and go from there. Um and uh yeah, you've got you've got stories of guys trying to figure out the right shape of a spacecraft in the I think it was in the late in the late 50s and um there's video that I saw and I know I have somewhere instead of building models and taking the time and using the materials to build model spacecraft and put them in a wind tunnel, they took paper plates and shaped them like different types of heat shields and dropped them off a stairwell to see which one floated. Cause that would be the design that might generate the most lift. So you have these like weird workaround solutions. It's an era where, you know, things weren't quite as regulated too so you have um pilots building training vehicles themselves with scavenged material on a military base and no one is telling them to stop oh man so you just have this like this free-for-all like no idea is a bad idea it like it was such an unknown that like i mean quite frankly it was really dangerous but they were so used to like planes being successful and death was a normal part of test pilot life so in this new test realm of space flight they accepted this risk and kind of went with every crazy idea to see what would work and you have these insane stories of pilots dragging themselves in homemade vehicles behind a muscle car and a military base to see if the thing can get off the ground you're just like you wouldn't necessarily see that happen today, but in, in you know, the early 60s, it just worked and it was so normal. <laughs> you had to be some level of brave to be one of those test pilots. 100%. I just, I can't even imagine some of the things that they've done. I mean, being, I've never, obviously, I'm not a military pilot. I've never flown in a, you know, one-seater fighter jet, but I've seen some footage from cameras, you know, on canopies or under wings. There were some pilots who flew the uh, the X-15, which is an early rocket plane. It flew from 1958 to 1967. They got upwards of 380,000 feet. That is so high. Like, for comparison, an average jet is about 35,000 feet. Wow. Um, and you can see the blackness of space. You can see the curvature of the Earth. And you have the skill in your right hand to bring you back through the atmosphere. And you're going seven times the speed of sound. You have the skill in your right hand to bring you back down to the dry lake bed safely. I can't imagine. And they're like, no, it was fine. We trained. The simulators helped us out. I've talked to some of these guys, and they're so nonchalant about it. And I'm like, I can't even look at the pictures without getting a little bit anxious for how scary that is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's a different mentality. It's really this, like, confidence bordering on arrogance but knowing that you have earned that confidence because you've done it 
Like there's something about that, that old 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s test pilot that's just like the guy that's going to get into anything with wings and a rocket in the butt and is just going to fly it. <laughs> and look, when you think about it, you're, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, and they say simulators, and we probably have a science fiction modern simulator in mind, but I imagine that they weren't the same level of simulator that we see today. It's not the same lev- level of science that we see our no. astronauts undergoing before they're even approved to study to be an astronaut, yeah. let alone actually be launched anywhere. Yeah, because you think of a flight simulator now. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen in like a documentary or something. Um, you know, the simulator that has a cockpit. You're in a closed little thing, and it's you know showing you exactly what would be in front of your 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 eyes on a real flight. So you're seeing whether you're seeing other things that you have to dodge, whatever. You're seeing the whole thing, and it's really like a full immersive simulation. They had some of the most bare bone trainers you could imagine. There was one that I love called the Iron Cross. So we're going to go back to this X-15 that I mentioned. So this thing is a single pilot. Uh, it had to be launched from underneath the wing of a bomber because it only had enough fuel to power the rocket engine for like a few minutes to get it up to that 380,000 foot altitude and then land. Um, so to learn how to control it in the upper, upper reaches of the atmosphere, we don't have like air for normal flight controls like you have on a commercial jet to, to bite into they had what they called reaction controls so spacecraft have them they're just little jets that like you you push out some gas and the opposite reaction pushes you the other way basic physics but to learn how to how to control this thing they built this thing called the iron cross and it is exactly what it sounds like it is a two steel i-beams on a gimbal truck mount Ugh. and the pilot would sit in the seat and he would have a control that would activate four jets on either end and just in a, you know, in a dress shirt and dress pants, just sit there and try to balance to learn how sensitive to be with those kinds of controls. Gosh. And there's, I mean, there's a great, Neil Armstrong was one of the pilots of this plane. There's a great picture of him just kind of hanging out in this little thing, like, like balancing all around and going back and forth. And it looks like a lot of fun until you realize you have to somehow translate that skill when you're in an empty aircraft hangar in a, you know, slacks and a button down to when you're 380,000 feet above the earth in a missile with a cockpit. <laughs> and any mistake is death. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things that a, a tiny overcorrection here can translate to being massively off course or tumbling. And yeah, it's, it's serious business. And these guys just did it and it was part of the job and they love it. And it's so much fun. If you read memoirs of some of these guys, it's like it's infectious how much they loved it. Like it makes you want to be one of them. <laughs> and well, when you talk to them, when you've sat down with them to collect, you know, your your vintage astronaut uh, autographs, what? How do they reminisce about that time? And then where they where they ended up, you know, like to to say Neil Armstrong, and he was the guy. He ended up on the moon. You know, he went through yeah. it all. He went through all that technological change. How do blokes like him and, and fellas who are around him reflect on exactly the technolo- technological change they saw happen in that period of spaceflight? It's interesting. When you sit down and talk to those guys, you're, the first thing you got to remember is that like, they're all just people. <laughs> so some of them are a little bit more like oddly nonchalant about it than others. And, you know, some are like, oh, you know, we did a thing and we did the job and it was an engineering thing. And they're absolutely right. Um, and they, you know, will acknowledge that it was incredible and amazing, but, um, 
yeah, they're they're a little bit sort of I don't know, nonchalant's not quite the the right word, but they don't have the same sense of awe about it. But they will reminisce very fondly about being part of this incredible program that achieved such amazing technical feats. Um, and I, I, it does feel like some some of them. I mean, you know, at this point, we're getting fifty years away from some of these missions and these flights. You get the feeling that it's it happened so long ago for them, and they've retold the story so many times that it sort of feels like it's almost rehearsed. Mm. Um, so I, I've found with some of these guys, and it's it's not an an easy thing to do, and it's weird to go up and try to like break down that that wall with them a little bit to kind of let them open up just a bit to give me some insight into the what it really felt like. So, you know, I I, I talked to one of the guys that flew this X-15 and he was, you know, kind of gave me the, almost the PR answer of like, well, we trained and we had simulators and we knew what we were doing. We we're good. And I'm like, I mean, of course you guys were good. You're the best of the best, but weren't you scared ever? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, you, you sort of kind of push it a little bit. You're like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to defame you and say that you call you a wimp. I'm going to call you the biggest badass that ever lived yeah. but like you know they're so, they'll sort of say like eh, you know a little bit but they'll also you know tell you that they they had a radio in their ear so they didn't really get to think about it it was happening so fast they didn't really have a chance to stop and think okay i might die but we're gonna make it so i don't that it's you know you train so it becomes second nature and you kind of get a sense talking to them that it's just it was the job like a surgeon they were just doing a job yeah. They don't think about it. Yeah, a heart surgeon's probably not going to say like, oh, it was amazing that I resuscitated a man by squeezing his heart in my bare hands. Yeah. Like, he'd be like, no, I, you know, I had to do a, a mid-surgery resuscitation. That's not a thing. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but, you know, they <laughs> might be nonchalant because that's part of the job. You know that you get a sense that these guys, it was part of the job. Um, an awesome job. But, yeah, some of them are, are sort of comfortable with that. <laughs> Yet here the rest of us are going, that is a superhero yeah. type mission. Yeah, it is actually really funny if you ever go to the, there are some events where, you know, space fans from all over the world will, will congregate to get a chance to talk to these guys. Um, and I've, I've been to a lot of them. It's fun. But it's, you know, you do kind of have, it's this interesting thing where they're talking, the astronauts and the flight directors are talking amongst themselves and kind of reminiscing about the good old days. And it's the fans that are having the most off-filled yeah. <laughs> reactions to even just seeing these guys in person. So it's almost like, yeah, the the, the fandom has kind of transferred onto the fans because mm. for them, it's like, we did a very good job. And for us, we're like, how did you do these things? Like, it's just that amazement, but like we didn't live it and we all want to have lived it. So please tell us. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. If we look at NASA today and other space programs around the world representing Australia here, because we had, have just announced that we're getting our own sort of space yeah. organization, which is very exciting. We're finally catching up with the rest of the world. But how are some yeah. of these key vintage historical space flight moments, how have they shaped these space programs that we see today? I think there's kind of echoes of the past outside NASA in terms of kind of other other space agencies in that the biggest kind of echo is that NASA was the first one that did it. And it was the one that sort of figured out in the first place how a multi-stage rocket would put a payload into orbit. And that's, you know, that's the goal of every space agency starting out, put a thing into space. So you, you learn from the past, right? Everyone learns from the past. So a new space agency is not going to reinvent the rocket. The rocket's the rocket. You might, you know, change things, obviously, and develop things further. But the kind of echoes of NASA remain because space flight is 
still the same. Yeah. We have new rockets and, you know, new technologies and stuff, but we're still using the same brute force rocket to punch stuff into space and go from there. I don't know yeah. how that how that works like in terms of structure and things. So, I don't know. I should look into that more. <laughs> <laughs> Vintage Space has turned into a, a vlog now. You've got a great account on YouTube. What do you love about sharing this with the world? Little bits of space history that people probably aren't aware of. I mean, the the initial thing that I'll say that I love about being able to run the channel is that I get to be a giant nerd about the stuff that I love <laughs> for a living. Um, but no, uh, that's I mean, that's the selfish bad answer. But no, the, the real thing that I and the reason I started doing it in the first place, because it started as a blog and then became the YouTube channel, was that I wanted to be able to reach people that didn't necessarily want to sit down and read a big, long blog post that maybe wanted to watch something while they're making dinner. Or let's be honest, we all watch YouTube on in the bathroom um, so you know <laughs> give people that like that, like really easily accessible easy to digest little nuggets about space because ultimately we don't think about how much the space program has impacted our everyday life i mean so much technology has been spun off from nasa like the there's so much technology in your smartphone alone that would be impossible without the developments that came from nasa um one of my favorite things i mean uh the LASIK, the laser eye surgery, mm. that technology spun out of um, a technology that allowed uh, spacecraft to dock with the space station remotely because you need a super, super well-defined laser to make sure these parts line up in orbit. And that technology had a commercial outlet in LASIK. So all of these things, like if we didn't have to solve certain problems in space, we wouldn't have technologies that make our lives better every day. So um, I like to kind of remind people that the space program is still is still exciting, even if it's not as immediately exciting. Like we don't have astronauts going up all the time in America right now. And people are sad about it. But, you know, there's still really neat things about space. And sometimes sometimes it's just here, learn a little tidbit of history or a little piece of technology and go about your day and maybe share a piece of knowledge with your friend in a bar tonight. Yeah. It's, some, it's just you know, feed that curiosity. It's it's in part to remember that our space agency has done some amazing things and sometimes it's just here, have a nugget of wisdom. Often we do have such a shallow knowledge. You know, it is, I can remember having to do, you know, a diagram of the planets. Yeah. And yeah. you watch, in in Australia especially, you watch The Dish at some point in yeah. high school or <laughs> primary school. And everyone's seen Apollo 13 and we know about yeah. Neil Armstrong. But is there a real hunger for more? I think it's one of those things. Okay, well, like you said earlier, actually, that, you know, when you're a kid, you get curious and excited about all these things, but then that kind of dies. <laughs> um, and that's definitely a thing. You know, you find something else that interests you. You find other things that you want to do with your life. I think a lot of people either didn't realize that they want to know more about spaceflight. People know about Neil Armstrong, but people, when they think about it for a second, want to know how Neil Armstrong pooed. <laughs> which is honestly one of the most common questions I get. People find out what I do for a living. They're like, how do you go to the bathroom in space? I'm like, well, let me talk to you about cyber. Like, it's, right? it's one of those, like, when you can get it to a human level that it becomes relatable, you're like, I had no idea, but I love it. Um, so on the one hand, there's that. But on the other hand, it's just like you might not even think that you're still curious about something and you might, like, rediscover a childhood passion, even if you're not going to, you know, quit your job and become an engineer and start pursuing space. Like it might just be a casual interest that you kind of forgot you really liked. And I think people have these two experiences with when you when you deal with kind of space and 
in my case, old timey space content. It's that like discovering weird bits of humanity in this in the moon landing and in that era, and also just remembering that it was cool when you were a kid. What's the one thing you think we need to remember and know about vintage space flight that you'd like us all to take away from this chat? I think the takeaway. Um, Beyond the fact that Neil Armstrong wore a diaper on the moon, um, <laughs> is that <laughs> is that big big technology really takes a lot has has bigger roots than we realize. It takes a lot of people, a lot of years of failing and fumbling around to come up with something, and that that's true of that's not just true of the moon landing. That's true of absolutely every big technology that we interact with every day and don't think about. So. Um, what I like to kind of do with my work is really just inspire curiosity and in people to wonder a little bit more about how things came to be the way they are. So if you, you know, I think the one takeaway is to be curious about the things that you're interested in, even if it's just a casual interest, just be a little bit curious and dig a little bit deeper and you might find a whole awesome little slice of the world open up to you that you really want to dig into and explore. I know that you're coming to Australia and Auckland in July uh, this year. People can see you, check you out online, definitely watch your vlog and subscribe to that on YouTube. Amy, thank you so much yes. for talking to us. And we're looking for a vintage guy or girl in Auckland to take you to see a sheep. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. If uh, <laughs> if anybody would like to be a host in Auckland, uh, let me know and I, I would take direction of how to find sheep in New Zealand. <laughs> it has to happen. Excellent. Well, we'll put the call out here. We've got some fabulous New Zealand listeners. So if you can help Amy oh. out, let us know. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of This Retro Life. You can find us on Wooshka, iTunes and Stitcher where you can subscribe and of course rate and review us so it's easier for other guys and gals to find this podcast. To get more information on today's guest, head to our website thisretrolife.com or search This Retro Life on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have some photos and videos and behind the scenes and a whole heap more retro fun so do come and check us out. As always, if you're a vintage guy or gal from any era and into anything from cars to collectibles, we'd love to hear from you. Go to thisretrolife.com and drop us a line. Until next time, I'm Kai Handley. Thanks for listening to This Retro Life.